Swampside Chats, the podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we take on the arch-anarcho-capitalist Murray Rothbard in his 1965 essay, Left and Right, The Prospects for Liberty. Derek and the gang get caught in an ion storm and end up transported to a mirror universe where libertarians are, well, actually, left-wing, and orthodox Marxists end up right-wing. Prep the agonizer booth, because we're heading back in the enemy camp with C. Derek Barn. Back in the camp of the enemy. Here we are, behind enemy lines. We got Varn back on the podcast. I always seem to show up when the enemy's around. This week we read... Murray fucking Rothbard. Murray Rothbard, left and right, the prospects for liberty. I'd never read this guy before. Reading it, like the voice in my head was basically Ron Paul. Because that's what it reminded (laughs) me of. Ron Paul is like a, a disciple of Rothbard, who's a disciple of Von Mises. It really shows, both in like insane libertarianism, but also the kind of like sunshiny, kind of Pollyanna, like white guy smugness that's kind of in the tone of all this. Von Mises and Rothbard were anti anti Semitic for obvious reasons. You know? Yeah. But if you're used to uh, paleo libertarians and paleo conservatives, you, you know this guy. Well, actually, a lot more than a lot of the other far right figures that we talk about because this is what the far right in America until about, I don't know, six or seven years ago was predominated by. Yeah. This feels very familiar. And again, even though I'd never really like encountered this guy's thought before, it seems like kind of the general thesis of this thing is buck up libertarians. Like we need to take the long view and we'll see that the trend towards Liberty runs in the direction we prefer. Uh, communism will basically fall apart on its own and, All we have to do is keep on keeping on. There are some interesting deviations in that, though, where he talks about, like, Maoists are actually a positive sign because they, too, believe in liberty. Oh, yeah. There's some weird shit going on there. (laughs) There's some narrative scrambling craziness going on. Like, Von Mises Institute and Lou Rockwell used to reprint this all the time. And Lou Rockwell would reprint it. He would take out all the mention of Maoists. Because it seems so historically off-base, considering what we know about Maoism now. And a lot of the anti-revisionists, he's specifically talking about libertarians making like common cause with like the RCP in America. Part of his project is to tell libertarians your conservatism and your hysterical anti-communism are in the way of you seeing yourselves as at all possibly part of a mass movement or a materialist perspective. Yeah. Uh, this is interesting to me because he betrays us later on. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask about because I'm more familiar with Rothbard as this like bridge figure when you know like a libertarian starting to get fashy. And reading this, I have to say, I was pretty dumbfounded because for the most part, I thought this was like pretty brilliant. Yeah. For the most part. Uh. Right before he died in, uh, in the 1990s, he started supporting Pat Buchanan. Um, although he also made inroads in supporting Ross Perot, he was soft on neo-Confederates. Yeah. And actually 
went so far as to say that David Duke and Joseph McCarthy were models for making outreach into rednecks into the movement. But this was all in the late 80s. In the 70s, and to some degree the early 80s, he was much more sanguine on the social left. It was around 1983 when he started taking interest in the right-wing populist movement, particularly, specifically around Lou Rockwell and Ron Paul. Back when Ron Paul was running for the Libertarian Party in 88, which people forget happened, he started becoming more and more conservative and friendly to paleo conservatives. <laughs> my parsing my own right wing past, I sometimes like give hints to this. But um, in 2005, when I was becoming disenfranchised with paleo conservatism, there was this thing called left libertarianism. Now, you know, left libertarians as Chomskyites mm -hmm. and maybe unserious anarcho left comms. But what left return was in this context were Rothbardians who think Rothbard became too conservative in the 80s and that feminism and anti-racism were worthwhile causes mm -hmm. and that they should oppose the infiltration of people like Gary North and David Duke into the Libertarian Party. And this was a big influence on some people who like the one libertarian I still kind of respect to this day is Scott Horton, who is an anti-war activist, primarily, first and foremost. And he is furious about the way the libertarians have gone since he was in his 20s. But it's really rare. And so, in a way, Rothbard's trajectory, I like to think about, because if you want to talk about, like, the libertarian to alt-right pipeline, right. he's a model for that, like, before it was cool. Like, not to say he was never a statist in the way that alt-rightists are, but he was okay with making deals with racists. He reminds me of, say, the kind of frenzy anarchist figure Keith Preston who ran this website called Attack the System, and he would always say, like, anyone who's against the sinner is a friend of mine, even if they're a racial nationalist. Yeah, the sporadic movement of Murray Rothbard across the political spectrum was induced by a kind of opportunism mm -hmm. that was common throughout his, like, career, sort of an anarcho-capitalist ideologue. Like, he saw the popularity of the new left and basically responded to that. And then he saw, like, sort of paleoconservatism get popular in, like, the late 80s and 90s and move towards that. I've actually also met, like, people who've identified as left Rothbardians hmm. and, like, people have probably bumped into the C4SSS. Exactly. Yeah. This essay really wants to recast libertarianism as the really revolutionary thing. And even though he eventually compromises with conservatism, uh, the essay itself, within its kind of self-contained attempt to generate a new ideological understanding of the political spectrum, never goes back on calling conservatives kind of the long-term losers. And it, it actually yeah. is trying to assert capitalism as still world historically progressive if we could just discipline the bourgeoisie in the right way so that markets run things. This is going to sound nutty, but like Rothbard in this period and Moshi Postone would like 80% agree. Oh, I mean, that, that's a thing that was screaming out to me here with a different description of capital and capitalism, right? He clearly thinks capitalism works differently than it does or than we would say it does. Yeah, his issue that I would have with this first premise is his definition of capitalism is wrong because it makes capitalism transhistorical. And if he wrote a lot of history, like three books on the American Revolution, that says some things that some left-wingers do, that like the Constitutional Convention was a betrayal, that the Articles of Confederation were truly bourgeois radical, that you can't trust the bourgeoisie with power because they're so 
self-interested, they don't understand their own liberty. <laughs> there is a lot of ways where this rhymes. And when I was sort of exiting the paleoconservative world, going back and reading him, one of the things that how I got into the right and how I got out of the right was both anti-Iraq war activism. I met a whole bunch of international answer trots and, and MLs that were clearly unserious. I know that that'll offend some people. It, this is just my anecdotal personal experience here, but the people I met were not good examples of what you should be doing. Ahmadinejad uh, apologetics is not a way to like turn people to liberty. The antiwar.com crowd kind of picked me up. And that's also who they were more predominant in my area in the South. Although some of them had connections to like Green Greenwald and some of them have worked with like The Intercept Now. With the exception of some people I've later discovered to be Russian plants, which was a real thing. <laughs> Go on. Uh, well, like Israel Siramir, who's an anti-Semite. Also, Global Research was a big popular site amongst a lot of those people, which is also a Russian-sponsored conspiracy site. Like, explicitly, I'm not trumping up liberal charges. That's yeah. literally what it is. Mm-hmm. You're not mullerizing here? No. Um... And so, with the exception of those people, that's who was around, and everybody took Rothbart seriously, even the people who were anti-libertarian. The big divide in 2004, and this is going to seem very strange to us now, was that the objectivist anarchists have been too soft in the Iraq war, the objectivists have been pro-war. The Rothbardians and Ordo-Austrian school people, people who think von Hayek was too liberal, had been fighting with the Andranians, particularly over the Iraq war, and there is like two strains of anti-war libertarians against these objectivists. One were the Milton Friedmanites, which ironically I was talking about earlier about how Naomi Klein completely misread that. And the other were these Rothbard kids. And they were basing it off this, and they were appealing to Chomsky's off of this rhetoric around Maoism in this essay. <laughs> like, explicitly. Yeah. And this is around the time, like, say, Derrida died, and, like, Lou Rockwell wrote this peon to Derrida as a conservative thinker, which I think is weirdly astute. Oh, man. We gotta read that. Based off of this logic. And this may seem obscure to people now, because, you know, all these libertarians have not just betrayed any, like, left sympathies they may have had. They've also betrayed libertarianism at this point. At the time, there was this idea that in, like, 2006, there's going to be this left-liberal-libertarian alliance, you know, these libertarian or leftarians against neoconservatives and foreign policy in both the Democratic and Republican Party. People really thought that. And in fact, I say people, I did too in 2005. Hmm. That's how I met a lot of leftists who, who kind of got me back into this. You do see how this could end up more anti-imperialist than the kind of Ayn Rand faction that you were talking about, though, because it's, I mean, there's praise for Leninism here. There's this sense that, funny enough, monopoly capitalism is a bourgeoisie distortion of markets in a funny sense, theoretically, in this essay. When I used to tell Marxists to run over libertarians before nationalists do, I'd actually point out that Marxists traditionally agreed with libertarians on um, monopoly capital and rents. And that we can mm. start from there and then just show them that their assumptions about Locke were wrong. And you've actually mm. upended their moral framework in a way that, like, Marxism doesn't sound as insane to them. Except that it still does because there's other things that they do that makes it impossible to argue with them. On a pure moral values perspective, this did seem to me like a viable way to argue with people. And I only gave up on it around 2011. Mm. One maneuver he does is he basically claims that, like, socialism is actually centrist. 
and that it's sort of like the heir to conservatism historically because it tries to like achieve like liberal ends with conservative means. It's actually kind of perceptive about the New Deal not just being this pure victory of the workers' movement, but something that was negotiated and deliberated by big capital. Um, and even that applying to the progressive era, quote-unquote, regulations and reconfiguration of market societies. Yeah, the problem, though, is that he basically uses that to say that the New Deal was literally fascism. Yeah, he pulls a Jehu. I don't know, Chapo says the same thing. Not in the way, like, he means it, like... Because, like, it, it basically, it's fascist because, like, it infringes upon, like, the liberty of the market or whatever. It was a form of collectivism that was organized by big business and meant to embolden monopoly capital. Yeah, which is an enemy of the market in his mind. But one of the things that we have to remember is these guys took classical economics pretty seriously, as do Marxists. Most modern conservatives, including, like, non-Austrian libertarians, don't. Their conceptions are neoclassical Austrian synthesis stuff. That actually matters for this. And you guys know Jehu, one of yeah. our favorite mm-hmm. left-wing cranks. He comes out of the same world. Oh, that makes sense. Why he calls every Keynesian a fascist is he accepts John Flynn's definition of fascism, as does Wafbart. And John Flynn was this journalist who was working in the 30s and was studying Mussolini and, and Hitler and was a you know, a diehard anti-fascist, and then decided that the New Deal was fascist. Not, like, crypto-communist, like, was eventually adopted by, like, a lot of the post-New Deal right, but just out-and-out fascist straight up. You know, it needed war to function and to justify what it was actually doing, and that's why they were big on the FDR knew it conspiracies about Pearl Harbor. These guys also were popular amongst actual fascists because it made it sound like you didn't need to fight Hitler. It was a fascist versus fascist shell game. There's this weird, like, we hate fascists except for these other fascists who we kind of like, except when we don't, except when we do, that comes in pretty early on. So I don't want to say it isn't contradictory, but their understanding of monopoly capital, like, they use fascist the way that, say, most of us would use Bonapartist. It almost means the same thing. Right. And the way they're using it. And that is a carryover that you get in Leninism, right? Like, the whole social fascism thing that a lot of the pre-Lenin Marxists didn't share. That was one of the things that stuck out to me, is that as far as he was concerned, Leninism was more libertarian than Marxism. He praises their stance on national liberation and decolonization and... And imperialist war, and World War I, and that sort of thing. What he likes about Mao is basically that, you know, he's fighting, like, feudalism, essentially, and that he has this picture of feudalism that conflates, like, southern, like, chattel slavery with feudalism, which is another thing, and he has, like, this really like, nasty, brutish vision of feudalism that's probably, like, probably way worse than it actually was. It's this concept of the old order that lumps together every pre-capitalist form, which is, of course, less sophisticated than even the worst historical materialism. But anyway, um, conservatism is the party of reaction, the party that longed to restore the hierarchy, statism, theocracy, serfdom, and class exploitation of the old order. But the weird thing is he's not against, like, social hierarchies. He just prefers the social hierarchies created by the market. Yep. Because it's voluntary. He also thinks that if you were to subject the state to the markets enough, they would kind of, equivalent to Marx almost, lose their state function and, you know, in this kind of ass-backwards way, wither away. That's kind of the idea of anarcho-capitalism. The implicit logic is that you could complete capitalist civil society, totalize market relations, 
atomization and alienization that would result would end the need for state domination in capital. And that's, that's liberty. That's the total civilization of capital, absolute individuality, which would undercut any capacity for workers to combine. So they'd have no choice but to labor for capital and to understand their future interests in terms of the success of capital. But then in that is the contradiction that the bourgeoisie then is actually something that has to be disciplined and controlled into that same total atomization by depriving it of the state too. And so the critiques they make of like crony capitalism and such are these critiques in a sense of bourgeois class tendencies toward their own kind of collectivism or combinations of sectors and business by power of scale. You know, in in needing the state to achieve these dominations, they're seen by libertarians as proffering the means to the proletariat to impose socialism. And libertarians can't understand socialism as much other than the rule of the state. But to disaggregate the bourgeoisie from its crony position, you know, (laughs) you actually have to have a kind of regulation. And they... Talk about it like the invisible hand structure of markets is going to impose this discipline, but you know you would need some agency to guarantee the statelessness of pure market economics. Well, Rothbard actually thinks voluntary court system could do it, which means it would actually be enforced by arms. Well, I mean, literally, like you could choose to accept or reject the rule of arms. Uh, yeah. So basically, by libertarians, like a libertarian political class. But that's not in this essay, it's just something I know that he actually writes about. Mm. (laughs) Well, what accounts for his weird politics there, I mean, to us weird, is that he just thinks monopolies are not inherent to capitalism. He thinks the winds of capital will always blow them away, which is, you know, absurd. Yeah, that's the other thing is, like, he believes in imperfect competition and no information asymmetries are actually existing in in quote-unquote real capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's completely insane. If you're going to take a left Rothbardian that agrees with this essay and somehow sell them on a good Marxist economics, it would basically turn them into communists. You you would think that, but there's actually C4SS types that try to combine like Austrian school uh, economics with Marxism. Or they try to combine it with prehumanism, actually, is even more common. Like, well, there's a problem right there. <laughs> There's this uh, reemergence of anarcho-mutualism, which I think was bigger probably eight or nine years ago, and a lot of these people are probably tankies now, to be frank. Mm. But like, <laughs> there's all this, like, we're mutualists, and mutualists means you can be either a capitalist or a socialist. You know, we're just a collective of petty proprietors, basically, and it was proprietor socialism that C4SS was really pushing. There are some people who've tried to go further, Kevin Carson at C4SS, for example combine it with marxism and like sort of like do this marxist for capitalism marxist for market socialism but we mean capitalism sort of kind of synthesis also anarcho-capitalism is not really as incoherent as one would necessarily think when we understand it as like what if everyone was petty bourgeois yeah exactly what if everyone was a small business owner and they could own their own small business and we all interacted with each other as if we all owned small businesses. Right. It's essentially what the C4SS types want, in that they think that 3D printers are essentially going to allow everyone to own the means of production in their own homes. Yeah. Right. But I mean, who, who enforces property rights in that, in that situation then? Ding, ding, ding. Right, it seems like it all requires a pretty big state to actually make 
happen in a in a funny sense you know because who who's gonna guarantee the statelessness well here's this this is a couple of things that we're not taking into account in this account so they only believe in pure commodity money and by pure commodity money i'm not even talking about the gold standard in the sense that we think about notes for exchange for gold Mm. they believe in literal commodity money your money shouldn't be standard point to gold it should be gold so that it can function on a market value as a commodity. In this weird way, like very, very, very diehard, old school, classical Trotskyist (laughs) actually agree with Rothbart against modern left thinkers on money because they think, well, if you have fiat currency or even gold standard trade currency, the only thing that's really backing it up is this power of the state. But no, we don't need the power of state. We could collectively, as a community of small proprietors, get guns and enforce stuff by contract. And if no one attacks us, then there's a whole lot of assumptions about human nature that are kind of interesting. You talk about like Marxists who don't have a conception of human nature. You listen to this. But um, like we can have guns for mutual protection, but like who's going to attack us? We're just going to trade with everybody. Yeah. And as we're all mutual proprietors, like in this early utopian stuff, he abandons this, but this early stuff he talks about, it makes it sound like we could all be small proprietarians and like we might have to trade our wage for like part of the day, but the rest of the day we can own everything. The big problems, and this is when I was thinking myself why I never committed to this form of right-wing thought, even when I was on the paleocon side of things, was that I knew that land was stolen. Right. Because the foundational assumption that Wafbart has is that John Locke's use labor theory of value in regards to property was a literal historical fact. Right. And that's a libertarian tradition up to Robert Nozick. Yeah. Even though that, like, everybody who studied anything at the time knows that, A, that's not true. And B, John Locke had to know it wasn't true because he's writing at the time of the enclosure of the commons. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. A good portion of, like, history of liberalism like john locke wasn't taken seriously essentially from like the earlier days of liberalism up until like the mid-20th century like john locke was generally not taken that seriously as a liberal philosopher it was only when uh strauss basically like put a lot of emphasis on john locke as being like this father of like modern liberalism Yeah, and that's an interesting thing in and of itself, too, Rosa, because Strauss was arguing against a different kind of right. So what Strauss was interested in is Desley did neocons and all this other stuff, in addition to like weird trot defectors, is that there was a crypto-liberal tradition going all the way back to Plato, and that John Locke was a key figure in that, and that rightists who were concerned about social stability and welfare should go to Locke. And not to people like Carl Smith, who Strauss knew personally and had argued with. Mm. So, like, one of the interesting things about this, and again, to contrast this with the kind of other thinkers you've had me come on and talk about, the Maestra and um, Spangler, is, like, when Spangler goes rhapsodic about nationalist, you know, socialism, but he hates Nazis, so, but his weird version of that. Right. Like, Rothbart takes Spangler statism as kind of the ground zero for fascism. What Spengler sees in the conservativeness of, like, state social projects and, like, status proto-Keynesianism and stuff and, like, his weird man crush on August Babel and stuff like that, <laughs> that's actually totally related to why Rothbart rejects them. So this, in a weird way, is not just mired in, uh, like, our understanding. 
we also at a time where these divisions amongst the right aren't as clear to us anymore because their popular instantiations are so muddled. Mm. Like right wingers will bring up Anne Rand and Rothbart and Smith and, 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 but these people hated each other and were kind of all vying for a spirit of what kind of countercultural right was going to come out of the failure of fifties consensus center, right? Politics. Maybe it's because like so much of it now is so, one kind of post literate, but also two, it is just very reactionary and it's almost just like people looking to like aggregate different things they can use to justify their own pig ignorance, you know, or reinforce their pre existing prejudices. Yeah. You know what I mean? Murray Rothbard actually did like Ayn Rand for like a short period of time and like he ended up like breaking up not literally with her breaking up with her and then writing like a really scathing play about her and her inner circle that like makes fun of her. Uh, I believe it was something like Mozart was a red. <laughs> he considered her whole circle to basically be like one big cult, which I mean, kind of was. So yes, it's interesting to see, you know how like sectarianism isn't just for the left. <laughs> I always find something kind of comforting about that to like see these weird divisions. There is so much mirror universe stuff in here. I was kind of like dumbfounded by the first few like pages going over like, look, it's this long run despair that accounts for the conservatives rather bizarre short run optimism for since the long run is given up as hopeless. The conservative feels that his only hope of success rests in the present moment. It leads him to total concentration on the very next election where he is always hoping for victory and never achieving it. The quintessence of the practical man and beset by long run despair the conservative refuses to think or plan beyond the election of the day. When I would just get into the problems with short-term instrumental reason, even leftish kind of politics, I mean, this basically takes the words out of my mouth. The whole debate about the class origins of different forms of totalitarianism is here. The question of Leninism and Maoism versus classical Marxism vis-a-vis liberty is here. There's even like a form of the Brenner debate that kind of pops up. This time period's a closer time period to these people really knowing the same stuff we do. What we consider a weird countercultural hobby that we engage in that can become a political project was, within living memory, a political project for people like Rothbard. Right. That's a difference. Like, we see these things in the eye of resurgence in the way that he would have seen his version of classical liberalism. And, like, he is basically arguing, interestingly, for the liberal revolutionary tradition even though he sees socialists as like the ultimate evil in some sense, he also sees them as part of the same tradition as him, just a part he wants to see lose. I'd be interested in knowing what he would have thought about people like Hans Hermann Hopp, who claim him. But it's interesting, like, the guy who says right. feudalism and monarchy is good because capitalism is so privatized and what is feudalism but private government by an arbitrary family if so facto feudalism is better for liberty than democracy yeah that's totally at odds with what's going on here yet they knew each other yeah and so i actually i was asking myself this and i don't know had rothbart completely given up on this by the 80s you have to think through yeah like it falls apart as soon as you start to think through like where does this go because he just has like this blithe view of like markets and property rights will just work itself out to create the best of all possible worlds, this perfect equilibrium. You know, like he goes so far even elsewhere as to be like, you know, if parents could just have the right to buy and sell their children 
and if they weren't obligated under the law to like raise their children <laughs> like the market would just sort all that out perfectly like but if you think about like how you would have like a totalized world that would function if you just took these things to the maximum principle like it's pretty clear like it's incoherent like it's the inherent incoherence of anarcho-capitalism because you can't have capital you can't have private property without a state Right. You just can't. Yeah, this is historical materialism in action, watching Rothbard cast off the libertarian tradition. The essay seems to cut left. He seems to basically be wanting to line up along the left. He did! And be like, look, you are a leftist, actually. You're not a conservative. And most of this essay is spent accounting for why libertarians think they're conservative. He did, actually. He wasn't the only one, either. Von Hayek did the same thing, although he's not as radical as Rothbard. But Hayek, until he died, was like, I'm not a conservative. Quit citing me as one. It's historical materialism in action to see someone's entire edifice fall to their defense of capitalism and property. Well, he sees it upside down, too. Like, he sees, like, the problems that the Soviet Union had, the sort of ballooning of the state, as the logical consequence of the rejection of private property, right? In other words, mm. like, private property is the way to, like, completely, like, decentralize everything. But that still doesn't ignore the fact that that kind of decentralization is based upon a socially enforced norm. It's weird, too, because, like, you know, I was just skimming his Wikipedia before I recorded this. And there's parts where he talks about how, like, cops should be, like, allowed to beat up murder suspects or whatever. And he had, like, these views that, unless they got it wrong and the person wasn't, then the cops would be punished. But there's, like, this weird kind of, like, authoritarianism he has mm. vis-a-vis, like, the police, too. Where it's like, you're this anti-statist, but then you're, like, turning around and, like, talking about, like, dude, we gotta get these thugs off our streets. You know? You know, it's, it's funny you bring that up. I can bring up another anecdote from my personal life when I was getting out of this world. In 2004, one of my friends, um, I can still remember his name, but I'm not gonna say it, was, you know, rallying against the state and against Bush and blah, blah, blah. But then he went and did this rally for the death penalty in South Carolina. And I remember just looking at him and say, how on earth do you distrust the state to run your money, but are okay with it killing people? <laughs> as long as it's the little L state of like your local state and not the federal government. And remember, this is a weird time for me because this is back when like Gore Vidal was defending Timothy McBay from our point of view. And, and, like, uh, what an era. Everyone's like, oh, Trump years are crazy. I'm like, did you forget the Bush years? Like, uh, I yeah. lived through that. Sh- it was weird. I remember mm-hmm. reading some like stuff about Gore Vidal. I guess he had like a letter exchange with McBay or whatever. And he was like, he was a noble lad oh, God. who did not have a proper cause to which to dedicate himself. That was kind of his line. Yeah, it's like, if we could have just got this woke soldier to be a Marxist and blown up the government building for, like, yeah. left liberal values as opposed to oh God. vaguely racist ones. Honestly, um, I, I still like Gore Vidal, though. He's one of my problematic faves. <laughs> I actually do, too, but, like, that book, Perpetual War, Perpetual Peace, is real hard to take, particularly now. And it was literally until, I'd say, the second Obama election this was still going on. Where, like, people like Alex Jones, who's always kind of been a right-wing show, but would at least pay lip service to, like, mm-hmm. left-wing anti-government sentiment. Mm-hmm. Like, anti-globalization stuff, anti-war yeah. stuff. Prison yeah. planet. Yeah. KRS-One would come on a show. Yeah. He had a world technique on at one point. Several times. Yeah. It was weird. Um, but that's the world that this comes out of. In a way, like, the Center for Stateless Society people, they made more sense, like, socially, and not ideologically say, 10, 15 years ago than they do now. In some ways, I think we need to remind ourselves that because a lot of the people that we get into, like, 
the DSA world would have been taken into this world. I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about Rothbard and bringing this up and also like make sure we keep this in our own prospects mind is when I was coming out of this, I think every political podcast on iTunes were like three fourths of them were libertarians the way that they're like, you know, 85,000 vaguely socialist podcasts now. Mm -hmm. So these countercultural moments are very like historically and micro historically specific. And so this essay got passed around on the internet, like in live journal days all the time. Mm. Like, mm. you know, and it was used as a rallying cry to fight against Bush. I can see that. I wanted to talk about this because like, it was kind of my way into the right and kind of my way out of the right at the same time. Cause when I started thinking about how incoherent this really was, and I never fully glommed onto it cause I never really believed in markets as much as these people do. Right. But I'd be like, wait, how on earth could you possibly really believe this? <laughs> like, is, how, how is private cops going to be better <laughs> than state cops? Like, how is private universities, you know, even when I was a right winger, I knew that for-profit private universities didn't make any, like, economic sense, except that's a parasite off the state. Like, they literally can't make money. Yeah. The only way they can make money is through, like, subsidized loans and reinforcements. And, okay, so, like, me working in education and coming out of education, I really thought about this. If I believe this, then I would have to say, well, basically, I either believe the market can provide education despite the fact there's literally no evidence that it's profitable. Or I have to be against education in all instances. That's where I ended up. And then I started seeing Hans Hermann Hopp. I read the book he wrote, which he's partly, I mean, he pulls from Rothbard, Democracy, the God that Failed where he argues that like feudalism is more libertarian. And then I was like, whoa, they've taken this to the point where they've literally inverted their values. But in a way, like it is like, you're right, Lexi, this is like the bourgeois revolutions rent miniature, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. One of the most brilliant parts of this essay is he goes over what we would call the dialectic of liberalism and the dialectic of 20th century socialism and their self-undermining tendencies. I mean, I, I didn't walk out of this thinking of this guy as, as a leftist, you know what I mean? He gets a few things right in the broad strokes. The, like, Leninist read of ideology and the necessity of, you know, ideologues, essentially. And he talked about, you know, Lenin's love for Bukharin and the new economic policy and how it, you know, in so many words, corresponded to the, you know, stage of development or whatever. I mean, it's just... I was shook. <laughs> yeah, the stuff about Bukharin could have been neo almost. You can read this essay, like, almost peaceably if you just sort of take the cockshot line that before contemporary computation that socialism was impossible at the time. Or if you just take the second international line of, you know, the productive forces couldn't be built up without a capitalist stage. If you take that, like, you know, orthodox Marxist and Menshevik line there, this all pretty much falls into place, too. Yeah, a lot of, like, his broad, like, meta-narrative descriptions, like I said, were kind of, in his broad stroke, correct. But the real problems of this essay come around the edges and like the weird underlying assumptions. For instance, a point where he assumes like, and if we just didn't have these minimum wage laws, we'd have full employment. <laughs> well, yeah, the ideological yeah. commitment to markets totally blocks his dialectic here. Also, like you always wonder, like his anti-statism and his, his old rightism was always kind of interesting. You know, for example, one of the things that, that sort of shocks me that it is discongruous with this is because um, it implies that his later stuff may have been more congruous even with the stuff around this time. He organized students for Strom Thurmond in 1948. Yeah. 
and, and he was Jewish. <laughs> like, yeah. like, yeah. And he's just like, states' rights are that important because we got to fight the big state, even if it means empowering the little state. Right. Well, he was um, against the Civil Rights and, Act. Yeah, but like all libertarians were. I mean, like, right. and yeah. not all of them were racist. Some of them were just ideological to the point that might as well have been. To this day, people hate the idea that the shopkeepers can't discriminate who they serve to. I did sort of point out that once, and I got in a lot of trouble for this, even Lenin believes in freedom of association, and the Civil Rights Act does kind of put caveats on that. I mean, it just does. But how it does it is basically saying, like, a corporation is not a person for the prospect of freedom of association. If you are actually taking a consistence as American liberal jurisprudence stance on the law, one of the things that I actually like to point out that some of the conservative reason law are historically crazy, but legally they're not that crazy. They actually have a point because we have said the corporations are legally people. Right. This is literally the only instance in which they're not. They're even so on religious discrimination, just not racial. <laughs> Fascinating. The libertarian argument, if you accept that, and you're not arguing from consequences, but from principle, which some of these libertarians really do, mm -hmm. Rothbard would actually argue that if libertarian economics destroyed the economy, it would still be morally correct. Yeah, he's not a fan of utilitarianism, and I would <laughs> probably imagine consequentialism more generally. He's a libertarian deontologist. Like. Yeah, it actually goes back to von Mises' interpretation of Kant and the development of proxyology. Yep, exactly. As a methodology of that wing of the Austrian school. That's fun. That is basically deontology as logical praxis for economics, which means, like, stuff is true because it works out in my head. I don't even have to do math. Suck it. <laughs> like, Wait, well, t tell me a little more about this. I like the sound of it, actually, now that you're framing it that way. Rose is completely right. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, praxeology is this idea... That not only is economics like physics, it's like 17th century physics, so it operates off of first principles. And even if empirics seem to violate those principles, it doesn't matter. The first principles are logically consistent, therefore they're right. And so you don't need to do econometrics. Kind of this is like hyper-Aristotle, where if you have a universal syllogism and understanding... It's, it's hyper-Aristotle if Aristotle wasn't a values plural. Right, if Aristotle was more of an idiot. <laughs> It's generally supposed to map out human action within this sort of logically consistent framework. And from there, you're supposed to derive, like, an entire basis of, like, Austrian economics. Well, Austrian economics from von Mises onwards. Right, it's, it's specific to von Mises' school of it. Like, von Hayek didn't totally believe it, and the precursors to von Mises did not as well. They were not this kind of nutty. Yeah, that's, that's fucking nuts. This actually is affecting his thought here. Because they believe that the market's also the only information deducer in which you could treat everyone as if they were a universal subject <sighs> and not an object. And therefore, it actually can generate from the mind of the people what the deontological rules are. Hmm. But if people seem to be acting irrationally, that's impossible. So they're just under the influence of the state, <laughs> of the state or some other right. distorting factor. He touches on something related to this in a context that makes way more sense when he's talking about the inner rot within the vitals of liberalism that took hold in the 19th century and caused its decline and caused it to become a status quo ideology instead of something revolutionary. First, the abandonment of natural rights and, quote, higher law theory in favor of utilitarianism for only forms of natural or higher law theory can provide a radical base outside the existing system from which to challenge the status quo 
Utilitarians, on the other hand, in abandoning justice for expediency, also abandon immediacy for quiet stagnation and inevitably end up as objective apologists for the existing order. I actually think that's true. I think that's 150% true. I was pretty impressed by this very succinct statement of this. And I was more impressed by the second great philosophical influence on the decline of liberalism, which was evolutionism or social Darwinism, which put the finishing touches to liberalism as a radical force in society. For the social Darwinist erroneously saw history and society through the peaceful rose-colored glasses of infinitely slow, infinitely gradual social evolution, ignoring the prime fact that no ruling caste in history has ever voluntarily surrendered its power, and that therefore liberalism had to break through by means of a series of revolutions. The social Darwinists look forward peacefully and cheerfully to thousands of years of infinitely gradual evolution to the next supposed inevitable stage of individualism. And then he uses Herbert Spencer as an embodiment of the decline of liberalism. I mean, that's pretty solid. Yeah, I think of all the enemy camp texts, if I were to have to throw one at at somebody, I I would say this one. Honestly, it's really fascinating. I would go as far to say every Marxist should read this. This is nuts. Uh, No, seriously, like, with the understanding that their theory of capitalism is bananas. Well, it wants to enforce markets against the bourgeoisie, like the good of capital. <laughs> it's crazy, but it, yeah. it, it's, it's crazy in a really interesting way. It's the first thing that Marxism kicks back against. It's, oh, what, you think everyone's going to own their own means of production because there's no inherent tendency in markets towards concentration? Lol. It's the first thing that Marxism pisses on as utopian, you know, like prudentism, mutualist, small market socialism. Yeah, but I mean, Rothbard feels an emancipatory kinship with Marx, because both of them see this, the bourgeois revolutions as really revolutionary against the feudal order. But he's a political economist. He fetishizes the market. He portrays labor and capital as aligned together against the overreach of the state, mm. rather than aligned against the state as such, or aligned against it as such in their own particular ways relating to their class positions. But he sees a cleavage in the state and he understands this weird paradox in its function between, you know, management of the mode of production and its nature as a class state and social development generally. And I think that that makes it a really interesting essay. But it also makes it a really dangerous one. I agree with most of what you guys are saying, but I want to put a little point on it. No, this does have a goatee on it, for sure. This is mirror universe shit. But that to me says stuff about the left as much as it says about the right. It definitely does. If we'd have been doing this podcast in 2003, this would have been the first enemy text you did, or something around this. You would have started with Ayn Rand and then gone here. Why? Because it actually was more influential then. Right. The alt-right would not go for this. This is interesting. Yeah. I don't think this computes. No. Or maybe it computes more with Yang Gang than, but even that now. It feels so surreal because when you go and like you read like Moldbug, for example, or Nick Land's The Dark Enlightenment, it's just like the sort of libertarian assumptions are taken to like the extreme that Hans Hermann Hope does. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you point that out because both Moldbug and Nick Land do see themselves as part of this movement of successors to Rothbard. Moldbug, I think it's explicit. Yeah, it's really weird because Nick Land seems to, like, be horribly confused on what... Like, he'll always throw out references to Marx when talking about capital, even though he's more of an Austrian school guy. He's more drawing from Schumpeter than Marx, and, like, I think he even believes in proxyology. 
from what I remember of his older blog posts. Yeah, honestly, Rothbard reads like a little more familiar with actually having maybe skimmed some Marx texts than the modern kind of rightist intellectuals, quote-unquote. Even uh, more than his mentor, Von Mises, who always said he was, you know, interested in Marx. He's also read Lenin, and he's read more of the Marxist tradition in a very real way. When you hear all the, you know, right-wingers who claim that they've studied Marx or were Marxist, I mean, Jordan Peterson says it, which is kind of laughable. Lol. I mean, because I'm like, not a single thing you say about Marx is correct. Uh, Thomas Sowell swears he was a Marxist in college. David Horowitz really was, like, this is documented, and yet you would never know it. He was a Maoist, even. A lot of them, by Marxist, they mean they hung out with the left in college because it was cool. There you go. Some of them were were members of Maoist or Trotskyist parties. How much Marx do you have to read to do that? None. Yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) Those sects are really bad at their, like, political education. They're intensely bad. Like, usually, you're just sent along, like, activist task missions. Like, yeah, you could make activism into a shitty video game. I just realized that. <laughs> wow. Turn-based anti-strategy game. Oh, my God. All right, your, your quest is to slay five giant rats and distribute 5,000 newspapers. I mean, wow. Um, yeah, fund our, our new game on Kickstarter, everybody. One of the ironies of all this is libertarians never do that. They actually always start on education before activism, partly because what kind of activism you're going to really do other than like, yay, gold, yeah, right. yay, yay, gold, yay, gold. Be- Just stand outside of like a small business going, yeah, you guys are doing it right. But they were really like, okay, if not gold, then Bitcoin. Yay, Bitcoin, oh, yeah, yay, yeah. yay, Bitcoin. That, that's real ass praxis. <laughs> He is a commitment to praxis, too, which he touches on. Yeah. I mean, this guy praises the monthly review for realizing Yugoslavia was getting close to capitalism. If only it would just get rid of that pesky workers' control thing. Yeah, and everything went great when they did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is interesting, something about left culture. If you go to the Von Mises Institute, yeah, you might be an intern, but they're going to throw all their books at you for free, and you're going to do it before you can do anything. If you go mm-hmm. to, say, unnamed large Trotskyist organization that is probably aligned to Tony Cliff, either one of them, both of whom run extensive presses, and one of whom runs one of the best presses on the left, period. Mm-hmm. They don't ever even necessarily encourage you to read it. And they'll sue you if you try to, you know, put up a PDF. Or, or at least they'll, they'll have the head scream at you on Facebook or something. Well, Derek, Derek, pearls don't have time to read. You know, and it's ableist to ask people to read. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's all problematic asking people to break out of their habits and do something. I've heard people say that, like, prioritizing education is ableist. I have, too. Yeah. We've yeah. all heard that. Mm. It's woke. As an actually dyslexic person who's been, like, through multiple remedial English classes, math classes, and just whole bunch... That's just so annoyingly offensive. Yeah, I'm dyslexic and a phasic, and I'm a writer, and I read between 140 and 400 books a year, so... The Panthers used to have, like, stacks of books that they would give to people who were too hot-headed. Yeah. You know? Yeah, like, like, calm down, go read. Reading is very healing, and even when it requires extra focus from you, it, it is worthwhile and rewarding to cultivate. Or, I mean, you could just listen to podcasts, too, and get, like, the same education. I mean, that's why we, that's why we do this every week. Wink. Or, you know, if you actually don't have time to read, but you still need to get on those books, you know, audiobooks, they exist. Right. They're pretty good if you're trying to read something that's not particularly math-heavy. 
and you need like visuals. I, I found that out with Capital. Right. <laughs> yeah, don't do the audiobook of Capital. I think Civil War in France is on Audible. Yeah. As is the manifesto, which I ironically listened to at the Beijing airport at a commie Starbucks wow. um, <laughs> yeah. when I was coming out of Korea in 2012, um, just, just to do it. I'm like, I'm going to listen to Das Kapital. And I also bought a hanging not Tonka painting of Mao. Like, you know what they do for the Confucian immortals? They have those for Mao. The irony of that, I even wrote a poem about the irony of that. It's so crazy. Like, this is Lidler deification of a guy who hated Confucian deities and tried to wipe it. Like... Well, you know they say, you either die the hero or you live long enough to become the villain. Yeah. (laughs) We commies really made the timeline weird because it's a derivation of, like, something that's so metacognitive about history. You know, history becoming, like, semi-conscious of itself and just Mm -hmm. doing some strange shit all of its sort of things that end up being historical contingencies like, you know, Mao being appropriated for that kind of symbology are are just extra ironic and funny. I really adored his read on kind of the history of socialism and like the logic of socialism. One of my favorite things is how he was like rooting the idea of permanent revolution and like Lord Acton. Oh yeah, yeah. There is this pre-Lenin, pre-Marx history of permanent revolution in the bourgeois revolutionaries that has been completely lost are appropriated for weird reactionary means. Like, an example of that, Thomas Jefferson's Blood of Tree of Liberty, that's a permanent revolution idea. And there is also the stuff he goes on about where the uh, French radical laissez-faire liberals of the 19th century have a big impact on St. Simon. And, you know, gosh, if only... St. Simone didn't balls up all that class analysis and include capitalists as exploiters. Ugh. You know? Yeah, he basically goes, Marx would be right if it wasn't for that. But he ends up saying something so interesting. <laughs> God damn it. Marx and Bakunin picked this up from the St. Simonians. The result gravely misled the whole left socialist movement. Oh, wow. Uh, for then, uh, in addition to smashing the repressive state, it became supposedly necessary to smash private capitalist ownership of the means of production. But then here's the drop. Rejecting private property, especially of capital, the left socialists were then trapped in the crucial inner contradiction. If the state is to disappear after the revolution, immediately for Bakunin, gradually, quote, withering for Marx, then how is the, quote, collective to run its property without becoming an enormous state itself? In fact, even if not in name, this was a contradiction which neither the Marxists nor the Bakuninists were ever able to resolve. Most socialists, Fabians, Lasallians, even Marxists, turned sharply rightward, completely abandoned the old libertarian goals and ideals of revolution and the withering away of the state, and became cozy conservatives, permanently reconciled to the state, the status quo, and the whole apparatus. Mm. Kind of fucked me up, because a couple pages back, he goes on in the split in socialism, where... If you've read the manifesto, you know that there are these right-wing authoritarian strands of socialism that Marx recognized, and Marx was trying to set himself apart from. The Bismarck socialist. Yeah, the way Rothbard flags this is, you know, there from the beginning, two different strands within socialism. One was the right-wing authoritarian strand from St. Simone down, which glorified statism, hierarchy, and collectivism, and which was thus a projection of conservatism, trying to accept and dominate the new industrial civilization. The other was the left-wing, relatively libertarian strand, exemplified in their different ways by Marx and Bakunin, revolutionary and far more interested in achieving the libertarian goals of liberalism and socialism. But especially, 
the smashing of the state apparatus to achieve the withering away of the state, and the end of exploitation of man by man. Man, I would always get mad at reading editorials from like the 2000s because I had nothing better to do on libertarianism. They would always try to compare it to Marxism. But I think I'm starting to get some kind of comparison to it. American Conservative Magazine actually, I believe, quoted this essay as one of the reasons why they weren't libertarian. They said that, like, oh, this form of libertarianism is mirror image Marxism. It comes out of the bad, degenerate liberal revolutions, and we can't trust any of that shit, even if they are anti-war. It was more vulgar than that. I'm actually making it smarter than it was. But that was the logic. And there is a mirror world to this. I never actually got suckered in this far, because it never was an anarcho-capitalist or even really that libertarian. But the distrust they have of the state has been consistent part of my worldview my entire life, regardless of where I'm at politically, which also tells me that the distrust of the state doesn't have a whole lot of political content, mm. frankly. Like, it might be wise. Maybe smart people just distrust the state, left, white, and center. But, like, it does say something that how close this gets, particularly when you translate Moshi Pastone. And as a side note, I really do wish Marxists would learn to write for libertarians. Because mm-hmm. libertarian ideologues are way more articulate than we are. This is fabulously written. This is kind of inspiring in a weird way. Their side of academia is like in economics. In, in economics, they write really clearly. Mm. Well, either they write really clearly or they throw in a shitload of math. <laughs> These people come from the writing really clearly side since they're they're not big on math. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, by Mises back to Bastiat, they're like, math, ooh, sounds like Platonism. It's fucking Marxism. But let's go do some not math. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite thing about this, though, like, these people also hated, like, marginal utility theory and stuff to some degree. Not, not the later ones. Lee Rockwell's been into it. But because they would point out that it was socialist in origin. <laughs> Which is true! <laughs> like, oh, only a socialist would believe in marginal utility theory. Labor theory of values, where it's at. But the labor of the bourgeoisie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's the goatee. I mean, like, there it is. <laughs> that stuff is fun. But it's also darkly seductive. And what I think we have to deal with, because, you know, we keep on talking about the text and the brilliance of the text, and I keep on bringing up what happens afterwards. It is something you have to wrestle with. How did this guy who was so anti-statist that he thought it was okay to, you know, align with Strom Thurmond in 1948, but who was hated by people like William Buckley because even when he became more conservative in the 80s, he still thought the Cold War was stupid. (laughs) It's interesting, right? A rabid anti-communist who thinks the Cold War is dumb. Well, here he says communism was a genuine revolutionary movement that ruthlessly displaced and overthrew the ruling elites, while fascism, on the contrary, cemented into power the old ruling classes. He has such a blind faith in markets and in capitalism that he thinks, well, that stuff will just fail on its own. It doesn't require like a muscular foreign policy to contain it and defeat it. Right. It will just fail on its own. And guess what? They're kind of our brothers in arms anyway. They're just the evil versions of us. (laughs) But he's actually wrong about that, I think. The muscular foreign policy was necessary to defeat communism. Well, muscular foreign policy mixed with the fact that because of that muscular foreign policy, they could never get past markets and oil, which means that they always had to trade... As a side note, I've really thought about this lately because I have to debate somebody on state capitalist theory, which is a theory that I have come to reject because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. 
The justification of it is value production because the state still functioned as commodities, even though there were no markets internally or very few. If you believe that, then all reinvestment ever, even direct reinvestment, is capitalist, and it ends up doing the same thing that Rothbard does, and it makes capitalism eternally insistent in history forever mm. and ever. Amen. Yeah. That's one of the other things that I think you have to like really push back on with some of these left deviations is like the way we define capitalism really fucking matters. Mm-hmm. In that sense, mm-hmm. the debate about the USSR matters. In all other senses, it's stupid yeah. technology and we should stop. Uh, (laughs) I I guess the thing that in my ideal, you know, speech situation, whatever, where we can talk to each other and convince each other out of bad ideas, and then entire worldviews and ideological commitments would just fall away to argumentation, right? Like, the kind of Marxist economics that you would need to convince ideal form of this Murray Rothbard is the same kind of stuff you would need to make sense of the USSR. Right from a Marxist perspective. And, I don't know, even if actually giving whatever masterwork of Marxist economics that just ties it all together now to 1979 Murray Rothbard, even if that wouldn't move his needle because of his ultimate ideological commitments, like, it seems to be intellectually sort of the right way to go about things, Mm -hmm. is to think, what argument do you have to make in order for this person on paper to change. Because I know that the ideologue writing this pamphlet isn't going to change their minds, and that is evidenced by the way that he moves later in life and where he was before. But people that read this and are convinced could be open to this. Let me tell you what I think did it. It wasn't any argument. It was 2007, and a reminder that business cycles were a thing. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could develop, like, the perfect, like, model for communism in Python, present it to him, and he could parse it through, and at the end of it, you know, once he figured it all out, he would go, okay, but what about men's rights? Yeah. And that'd be the end of that conversation. I mean, that's an ideologue, but, you know, there are people that do make up their minds based on argumentation. I I know it sounds, like, dumb, and, like, who is the leisure to actually try to think through their historical confines or whatever, but... I really do think people like that are out there. They're usually not the ones writing the pamphlets and screaming on the internet. I mean, I agree with you, but at the same token, I, as a person who got argued out of a position, I didn't get argued out of it by any one argument. I got argued out of it by an argument and then an actual historical event. Well, sure. And in another way, that's like the elephant in the room when we're talking about here is like, why are there so many fewer C4SS people than there are Richard Spencerites? I actually tend to think the, the numbers of the alt-right have been greatly, tr- <laughs> I was about to say trumped up, but um, wow. but have been greatly like exaggerated in our own minds because of a lot of things tangential mm-hmm. to it. And the fact that there's a certain breed of young conservative that is like, uh, okay with being openly racist where they would have hit it 10 years ago. And those conservatives tend to be louder yeah. and more present on social media than say apolitical normies or whatever. Look, I I do know how ideological commitments work. I'm just saying that if you were to fashion a mental pathway for people that were going to witness the empirical event of 2007, right? And instead of being like, oh, I guess, you know, free markets and democracy and liberal revolution all goes out the window. Let's jerk off to the old order. Like, you know, if you could fashion 
a sort of intellectual pathway for someone that's like, well, I kind of want to hold on to a lot of that stuff, but obviously the stuff about markets is garbage. It's important to present, yeah, an alternative to catch people you can catch. Right. That's just my read on this guy in particular. You know what I mean? Like, he seems like that guy. You're quite right about this guy. But yeah, that is the task for the left and for communists, is to basically, yeah, do what we can to offer and explain an alternative to capitalism. (laughs) Because if we don't do it, the right will. We need to understand these arguments so that we know that they aren't like totalizing and undefeatable. But I also think we need to just like understand that these conservative or right wing views come from people misapprehending their real interests oftentimes. And that if we can kind of relate to them on that basis rather than as a debate, and to just kind of draw out how Mm. they're relating to their social interests. Because I'm really thinking about this not in terms of debating right-wing trolls on the internet, but say you run into a libertarian in the workers' movement. You know, like, say say there's a workers' movement again, and pro-Marxists are trying to figure out how to talk to people who are libertarians, who are also proles, but maybe kind of picked up fringe politics in some way. I think it is useful to be able to not view them as, like, automaton ideologues and to look at their texts as interesting perhaps it's important to investigate and understand this stuff i think you know in recent years a lot of the knee-jerk reaction to engaging with this stuff i think comes from the fact that when you interact with a lot of these people they're usually not arguing in good faith usually resorting to you know a lot of bullshit and so it makes you not even want to like look into it because you assume that their intellectual edifice is the same thing and it is kind of in that there's like major blind spots but you can look at it and engage with it and kind of get a sense of what their underlying values and underlying presumptions are and to see how they how they try to address like the problems of the system as a whole and i think when you look at it closely you see that ultimately they can't without either resorting to various like reactionary myths like race or overly sanguine view of like market capacities or that's a pretty good point. I was actually talking to another podcast, about, actually about conspiracy theories completely differently, two days ago, about how I personally have started adopting Rogerian arguments when I talk to people. Because I'm a teacher and I deal with a lot. Rogerian? Yeah, Rogerian, as in Rogers, the psychologist. I'm not familiar. So I always grant people two premises, at least two premises of which we agree before I try to argue with them. Some of which will seem self-undermining. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The biggest one I've been telling people to focus on right now, Marxists should quit talking about equality, even if we believe in it, right. and start talking about liberty. Yeah. Because I'm tired of us ceding that to the enemy. There's been this habit of the last year, and I think it's also because of the alt-right stuff, to just assume that every single libertarian's on a pipeline down to become a conservative nationalist. Mm. Even though some of the same people doing this were libertarians in their teens. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, let's be honest. How many of us didn't f- at least flirt with this? I know I did. This kind of thing was my start. I was really attracted in high school to libertarianism for a time because you saw some people who were really principled, or seemed really principled at least, about absolute freedom. And the market part, I didn't think about that very much because there was this commitment that was interesting to me. But the market stuff never landed with me, and I think that's part of why I didn't go down this route Mm. and why I became a Marxist instead, part of it. And also just real experiences in life with shitty wage labor and seeing that this this shit doesn't work. 
Yeah, this definitely appeals to people who have like some skin in the game in terms of capitalism, where it's like, yeah, see, I'm actually doing good for all society by like running my dad's dealership or whatever, you know. You need skin in the game, but I'll be honest with you, I've hardly ever met any of them who are business owners. Mm. Most of the people I've met who are Rothbardians, the great majority of those people are actually professors, just like hmm. Marxist. Another goatee. They get a lot like, of funding for it, too. Like at Auburn, where basically a good portion of these American-Austrian school types are, like, located. Auburn College, they get, like, funding from, like, wealthy donors. Yep. Funny you mentioned that. One of the people on my journey out of the right was Roderick Long, who works at Auburn. Um, and I used to hackle him about, like, you're a capitalist, right? And you, you're an anarcho-capitalist, but you do think feminism's a good thing and that racism's real. So I guess good on you. But uh, if you really believe this, I would do the same thing that like they do to us socialists. Be like, why do you work at a state school? <laughs> Which is a lame trick, right? But it's yeah. interesting to think about because that you you do need skin in the game. Like a lot of these people are invested. Um, and like I can say this from my own standpoint. When I was a low level insurance flunky who was investing in the market, and that was actually how I was going to get out of that, right? stocks are my way out so i gotta believe in capital because capital is going to give me the way to get out of this wage slave shit <laughs> and then it just became very quickly apparent that i would never have enough money to invest in the right stocks unless i was just extremely lucky yeah to do anything other than marginally better than i was doing right now the modern version of that is people who have like crypto schemes yeah yeah oh if you bought bitcoin at the right time yes you're a millionaire but otherwise yeah I work with a guy who teaches financial literacy and has all his kids buy Bitcoin, and I'm like, oh my god. Yeah. But that's the ideology of this world. And yeah, you do meet some small business owners who might hold this. You don't meet big business owners that hold this. And Rothbart points that out. Hmm. Most big business people are not ideologues. You get to that level. Yeah, you want like the collectivist uh, interest of the bourgeoisie. You want that government guarantee. Then you're locked in and you're set, you know? Yeah, to disaggregate the bourgeoisie from its crony position with the state, bourgeois actors would actually have to somehow not be bound to serve their like capital interests, but to serve markets broadly, even if it required individual suppression of their capital. <laughs> you know, there's just a state bound up in this ideology. Like it's going to require a stateless state to do your anarcho-capitalism to enforce it as such because the bourgeoisie is gonna try and have a state compact there's a state for a reason it grows out of bourgeois civil social relations it's gonna happen and just having like a bunch of smaller private ones just means you have like more states it doesn't fucking solve anything <laughs> right and it's based off a couple of myths i mean interestingly a myth that, that fascists like to point out is like small states are not necessarily more free than big ones which is uh Duh. Yeah. If you've ever right. dealt with your small town bigot, it's much easier for them to get power <laughs> in a locality. That, for me, that's where it falls apart, too, is who's going to keep this system together? You turn Milton Friedman's argument against it, yeah. And the other funny thing that I like to bring up is this is where the decline of the rate of profits actually matters. Because <clears throat> the argument is not just that the bourgeoisie acts in bad faith. Like, some of these guys, I actually do think, are acting in good faith. Not all of them, but some of them. Uh, it's hard to know about Rothbard. Mm. But it doesn't matter because they're just wrong about profits being sustainable. So, like, mm -hmm. that's why the capitalists would never subject themselves to this sort of market discipline is because they would go tits up broke. Yeah, the bourgeoisie wouldn't concede to this. A lot of them would flip a shit if the state didn't bail them out in 2008, for example. 
<laughs> Jay who was saying that in 2008 which th- at least he was consistent um, <laughs> you're all fascist but me yeah. and Goldbug Marxist <laughs> we gotta get Jay who on let's get him on our show or we gotta get him on Tom O'Brien's show gotta get him on the real movement Jehu w- was making Marxist arguments for why Ron Paul winning would have been a good thing. <laughs> 2012 or 8 or whatever the last one was. He's anti-imperialist. Well, that was part of it. And also, like, if you return to gold, all we have to do is crush work hours. Then, like, socialism can happen because capitalism clearly not work. So, <laughs> hell yeah. Just let Ron Paul win because it'll discredit him hell and yeah. then we'll be able to take over. Honestly, I've heard worse electoral strategies, though. Come on. It's not the most insane thing I've heard. I'm not even mocking it. It's just kind of funny how this led to this. Why do you guys think this has been so hard to maintain? Well, who would just be a sincere principled capitalist? Some of the people at Auburn do, but they get paid to. Like, okay, let's say you get on board with this ideology, right? You're like, you're a strapping young man. You're in college. You watch South Park. You're smart. (laughs) You know, you read this stuff and you're like, yeah, like markets and stuff like that. Then you get onto the real world. Right. And flash forward five years later, you know, you're working your way up at Blockbuster Video, that closed down, you know, you work just a string of shitty jobs, you're driving an Uber around, and you're like, well, I follow the principle of the free market, I would, I, ro- I rise and grind, I do everything I'm supposed to be doing, like, what, why isn't this working, like... Or you're middle class and on antidepressants, <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. Where are the black spots in this ideology? Well, you know, it doesn't have much to say about race. Um, let's look into that a little bit. Uh, let's consult my friends over at 4chan. And then you're off to the races, you know? Off to the races. We think of that as a modern phenomenon, but it's not new. I mean, one of the things is, is there's always been this libertarian soft spot for the Confederate Constitution because it was based off of the Articles of Confederation. You know, and there are Marxists. I actually have a book over here. Bertel Ullman and Jonathan Burbam, United States Constitution. There's a whole chapter they wrote about how the Articles of Confederation were actually far more progressive and more Marxist-oriented than the Constitution was. That said, that leads to a soft spot for the Confederacy, who supposedly based their Constitution off of that. This is all cultural appropriation from the Iroquois. (laughs) True. Actually, kind of funnily true. That's my way of getting around that. There you go. Because Ben Franklin based the Articles of Confederation off the Iroquois Constitution for the draft that was later ignored and changed. I would like it if Marxists read bourgeois revolution history more seriously. Yeah, the way like Nick Land sort of frames the whole race issue is essentially libertarianism fails because it does not understand race. They don't understand why these black people do not want to become libertarians you know, en masse, and why they aren't gaining any kind of ground with anyone outside of the small sphere of white men. You know, Nick Land's answer to that, well, it's obviously because the blacks, women, and other groups of people are tied to the state, the growing cathedral state that came about post-Martin Luther King. He's just doing a more edgelord version of Charles Murray, because Charles Murray said the same thing in the book. Rothbard might be more idealist than a lot of these explanations in a way, but his explanation is kind of way better. Yeah, that said, he he gets soft on the clan. I'm defending the tax and not the man. <laughs> and I like that you're reading this charitably, but as a person who came out of this world, I don't think I can. Let's look at the goatee here, because I think it's worth paying attention to, right? All right. What the Marxists would call the, quote, objective conditions for the triumph of liberty exists then everywhere in the world and more so than in any past age. What is needed then is simply the, quote, subjective conditions for victory, i.e. a growing body of libertarians who will spread the message. 
But perhaps the greatest stumbling block to the creation of such a movement is the despair and pessimism typical of the libertarian in today's world. Much of that pessimism is due to his misreading of his history and his thinking of himself and his handful of confieres as irredeemably isolated from the masses and therefore from the winds of history. Hence, he becomes a lone critic of historical events rather than a person who considers himself as part of a potential movement which can and will make history. The modern libertarian has forgotten that the liberal of the 17th and 18th century faced odds much more overwhelming than faces the liberal of today. For in that era before the Industrial Revolution, the victory of liberalism was far from inevitable. And yet the liberalism of that day was not content to remain a gloomy little sect. Instead, it unified theory and action. So you're saying that Rothbart was too Leninist? Like, I've, I've always joked that Ayn Rand is, like, inverted Leninism because she is mad that the Bolsheviks expropriated her family and so she adopted his shitty epistemology. But in a way, like, Rothbard is a much smarter inverted Leninism. And it's pretty interesting that he goes full praxis there and he's really all about them subjective conditions in a way everyone from, like, Althusser to Mao could appreciate. Does he go full praxis, though? What does he tell people to do besides, like, form think tanks like what is he saying here he thinks like just relying on education is silly he says this like in the same section um that's a great quote lexi you gotta read that it's part of a bigger quote that's super interesting and it's also part of the reading bourgeois revolutionaries thread that we're going on the old order is doomed to failure the liberals of the past have left to modern libertarians a glorious heritage not only of ideology but of victories against far more devastating odds the liberals of the past have also left a heritage of the proper strategy and tactics for libertarians to follow. Not only by leading rather than remaining aloof from the masses, but also by not falling prey to short-run optimism. For short-run optimism, being unrealistic, leads straight away to disillusion and then to long-run pessimism. Just as, on the other side of the coin, long-run pessimism leads to the exclusive and self-defeating concentration on immediate and short-run issues. Short-run optimism stems, for one thing, from a naive and simplistic view of strategy, that liberty will win merely by educating more intellectuals, who in turn will educate opinion molders, who in turn will convince the masses, after which the state will simply fold its tent and silently steal away. Matters are not that easy, for libertarians face not only a problem of education, but also a problem of power, and it is a law of history that a ruling caste has never voluntarily given up its power. Like, Lenin was like, we gotta arm the workers, we gotta fill up the trade union. Like, there was like there was a clearer path to power than there is for this guy. Where he just says, like, yes, we have to tackle the question of power, and I yield the floor. So I can tell you what he actually advocated. One, he advocated the formation of a libertarian party. I guess the party of the bourgeois, but for real this time. No, actually the party of capital against the bourgeois. <laughs> yes. He also thought that strategic support of anti-war activities and any government mucking up, including and up to, like, leaderless resistance-style soft terrorism, was okay. Okay, that actually does sound like concrete strategy, I mean, okay. <laughs> yeah, I understand why he didn't write that down now, at least here. Objection withdrawn. <laughs> That's why he would do stuff like... He'd support the Maoists one minute and go support, like, the Dixiecrats in another one because he'd, like, anybody who's going to mess up what the state does has our backing. Critical support to ISIS. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is basically the capitalist mirror version of the Sparks. But it leads to all kinds of incoherence because, Jake, you are picking up on something. This praxis, it's not concrete enough because he runs after everything. 
So in the seventies, he even titles the Libertarian Journal left and right. Yeah, like he named it after this essay. Mm. Then when that doesn't work, he's like, "Well, Klansmen hate the government." <laughs> <laughs> the weird times where horseshoe theory isn't totally bullshit is like left cons versus ultra libertarians. They're actually very temperamentally similar. Um, <laughs> having been around both, I can vouch for this. They both also have weird soft spots for fascists. No, no. Um, <laughs> Keep it spicy. <laughs> Keep it spicy, Derek. Um, Mama Mia. I'm sorry if your tradition has more than a little bit of like, well, the Holocaust deniers were bad, but not that bad. They oppose capital. <laughs> Look, we still uphold their contributions, okay? Well, if you read it differently than what it says, they're not defending Holocaust deniers. <laughs> Look, I don't want to cause war with leftcoms. Like, not all leftcoms, okay? I mean, I get it. But not all libertarians either. And what we have to kind of deal with is, how would something that believes in liberty so much invert itself? And for all the normies out there, how can we appeal to this notion of liberty? Because I'm going to be honest with you. When I talk to working class people, and this is regardless of race, being free has a lot more... Mm-hmm resonance than being equal yeah just remember kids when rothbard is wooing you with his sermons about freedom and youth serving as a guidepost for the spirit of liberty remember that his liberty means selling youth on the market yeah (laughs) you should have the voluntary right to sell yourself into slavery and or your parents do it for you why do you think the (laughs) cryptocurrency that is mainly used to buy child porn and sex slaves is also popular with libertarians. Just think about it for a solid minute. Yeah, I'm just imagining, like, dark enlightenment computer people, like, doing all these equations and writing all this code, like, we gotta think of a way to buy child porn where they can't trace it. They're just writing equations on a blackboard and grinding around the clock. It's like a beautiful mind. Yeah, it's like a beautiful mind. This flies in the face of 150 years of economic theory. Yes, I do, sir. That's rather presumptuous, don't you think? It is, sir. That's it for this week. As you may have heard, Swampside Chats is now part of the Emancipation Podcast Network and Research Collective. Check out our comrade podcasts at emancipation.network. Derek and I are featured regularly on the From Alpha to Omega reading series, which can be found there. If you're into our bong rip shenanigans, like our pages on social media, or leave a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice, If you really, really like us, consider subscribing or donating to our Patreon. $1 a month gets you access to early episodes and our Discord chat. Five a month gets you tune into our recording sessions. And for $10 a month for over a six-month period, well, that'll net you a custom episode. You can also grab custom episodes with a $60 lump sum donation to our PayPal. 
That's patreon.com slash swampsidechats and paypal.me slash swampsidechats. We've got a couple cybernetic requests coming, then off to some very special episodes. As always, keep your boots clean.